There's always one too many arms, she says, as they struggle on the couch to find a comfortable position for kissing. He asks if she recalls a couple they saw recently on a park bench, and instantly, and happily, they give up on their own intimacy in order to ridicule someone else's. They simulate how this other man held this other woman's fingers in his mouth. The two looking at each other were even funnier, she says, and they mime the smoldering stares of yet another couple. The third couple they make fun of is themselves, as they restage an earlier kiss of their own with a pane of glass between them. But her lips don't even touch the glass. They kiss the air in front of the glass, a simulation of a simulation. She next feigns amorously clawing at him, and with each facsimile, they move a little closer to abstraction and a little further away from each other. She pretends to kiss all over his face, but doesn't. They look like they are wrestling. And then, as if it were a sport, a buzzer goes off, and they stop. It's late, she says. Awkwardly, they embrace a little more at the door, but never kiss. They make promises of tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that. And they say it as if they had rehearsed it for a future simulation, or like they had overheard some other couple say it in the past. But the things they promise aren't true. Are they? Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Criterion Cast, where we discuss the important contemporary and classic films of the Criterion Collection. We're recording this on August 16th, 2020. I'm Jordan Esso, and I'll be your host today for episode 210 as we shine the spotlight on Michelangelo Antonioni's 1962 film, La Clisse. This is Spine 278, and it is the final chapter in what has been retrospectively titled Antonioni's Alienation Trilogy, also known as his Trilogy on Modernity and Its Discontents, which also includes La Ventura from 1960 and La Note from 1961. Let's meet our roundtable. First, we have Scott and I down in Los Angeles who just posted that Cary Grant is his favorite actor. Scott, which film of his is your favorite? Oh, man. Uh, I go back and forth and all over the place, so I'll just say bringing a baby for the sake of ease, because I saw that recently. Nice. And second, we have David Blakesley in Wyoming, Michigan, who just posted that he owns the complete series of Olive Signature Films. David, <laughs> I only have High Noon and Macbeth. How is the rest of the line treating you? It's a it's a fun, eclectic little mini-series, I, I guess you'd say. It's very inconsistently published, maybe one or two or three titles a year it seems and with no regularity but it's yeah they've just got odds and ends um you know olive films has released a lot of movies over the years but uh if there's a select few i mean probably about i don't know 15 or so that they've decided to put out in these quasi deluxe editions and i just got uh, the bells of saint mary's and hair their two most recent releases found a couple of good deals on those so i am olive signature complete <laughs> Good graphic design on those editions. Yeah, they're fun. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, you know, they're probably the little kid brother compared to you know, Arrow and Indicator and of course Criterion and a few other, you know, robust lines that are out there, but you know, Olive's doing their thing and if you want to be complete on any particular run of uh, you know, high-end Blu-rays, that's probably about the easiest line that's out there right now to I don't think any of them are out of print, so you know, fun little niche there. For sure. And third, we have Ark Devins in Berkeley, California, and he recently tweeted that he is all in on the Seattle Kraken. 
What does <laughs> what does all in mean to you? Have you bought a branded face covering and autographed puck? <laughs> oh man, no, because they won't sell. They they have like two logos, and one of them is is a, an S that looks pretty good, I guess. But the other one is like a an anchor where the middle of the anchor is the space needle, and I desperately want that on a hat, but they don't sell it yet. Though they sell it on hats that are curved, but not flat caps, you know. Oh, they will. Oh, I know, and I will own it. <laughs> And, oh, hey, Eric, can we get a volunteer to summarize the narrative of Laclise? Uh, y- yeah. Um, sure. Sorry, I was <laughs> reacting to Eric. Um, <laughs> Did I call you Eric? Yeah. I'm sorry about that. It has happened once before. Hopefully it won't happen again. No worries. It just took me, I was like, is there another person on this call? Is there a mystery <laughs> guest who's going to summarize the film? Uh, yeah, no, I can <laughs> Yes, I can put your ahead. feet up, Eric. Eric's going to take this one. <laughs> I can do it. Um... Yeah, so this movie tells the story of Vittoria, who is a, a young lady who at the beginning of the movie is it has spent the entire night talking to her, her fiancé, uh, going over their whole relationship. His name is Ric- Ricciardo, Ricardo, I don't know. The, it's spelled like it's, they pronounce it Ricardo, but it's spelled in a way that makes me think it should be Ricciardo, but they're Italian and I'm not, so we're going to go with them. Uh, but at any rate, they've been spent the whole night talking about their relationship, and she's determined that it's over now, and she's leaving, and then he doesn't really want to let her leave, and uh, but she does, and eventually she makes her way to the stock exchange where her mother plays the stock market and briefly meets a young man named Piero, uh, but the, con- continues on her way, uh, has an incredibly racist and problematic adventure with a... a Ken, white Kenyan woman in her building, which I'm sure we'll get into, and uh, and continues to kind of just kind of go about her life. Uh, at the same time, we see this Piero and her mother's adventures in the stock market and uh, what's going on with that. And there's like a market crash in Italy. And eventually all of these different plot threads sort of come together when um, Piero and Vittoria properly meet and uh, begin something like a courtship and uh, eventually that blossoms into something like a relationship and uh and then ends in the monologue you know the the thing you mentioned in the monologue where their relationship apparently falls apart and the film ends with a 7 minute long montage of the neighborhood where they would meet but with no lovers to meet very good yeah this narrative seems to have multiple centers of ambiguation, multiple centers of storytelling that overlap and don't necessarily seem to follow in a predictable order. But I I wonder if in anyone's like first thoughts, if we could specifically touch on the topic of like how this film is structured. Like that was a great uh, narrative synopsis, but it doesn't feel ordered and logical when you're watching it, at least the first time. Uh, let's go to Scott first. Yeah, that's a good way to start out to latch onto because there's like, you know, two or so major plot developments in the film, kind of the dissolution of the relationship at the beginning. And I'd say like kind of the stock market crash midway through the film, but everything else seems to react on what we've seen or what we've half seen or what's happening slightly off screen in ways that, yeah, kind of occasionally seem confounding, you know, scenes will seem to stop sometimes in the middle of them and then maybe we'll pick up the, that thread later in the film or maybe we won't um the whole kind of confrontation with the woman who's come back from africa 
doesn't really resolve itself. She just kind of appears later to shoot a balloon in one of the film's more comedic scenes. Um, but all of this is kind of a piece with the aesthetic purpose of the film, and I guess by extension, the purpose of the film in general. I tend to think that this is kind of where Antonioni transitions away from being, I don't want to say merely a great filmmaker because he was merely, he was a great filmmaker and there's nothing mere about that. Um, but he really grows here into being, uh, I think a great and even legendary artist where, you know, there's, it's almost impossible to describe this film. The ways in which it works on you are so subtle and so intuitive and so strange. It's really due to the aesthetic experience of watching it, of watching the way these people react to the environment he sets up and he, and one another and the way he kind of orchestrates them to behave. I think even in La Ventura and La Note, which were really uh, striking and unique works of their own, they were still operating in kind of a melodramatic tradition that were, was unusually expressed and unusually structured in its own right. But this is really something else. It's almost like a science fiction movie in which we never find out the inciting incident. You know, th these are like side players to whoever's figuring out the main plot and invasion of the body snatchers or something. There's right from the start, there's a sense of disjointness that, uh, moment where Monica Vitti walks into, uh, Ricardo, who she's just broken up with. And he's just kind of staring blankly into the distance. It doesn't follow her across the room. You know, everyone in this film is operating as though they've experienced some great trauma that they're trying to ignore. There's some underlying sensation that keeps us out of place. And I think the narrative structure follows that as does Antonioni's camera and editing style. I think the film as a whole is really an incredible piece of work. And, uh, one that really marks a new, as much as it's the capstone of a trilogy, I think much like Bergman's The Silence, it kind of marks a massive transition for Antonioni as well. Yeah, all that is really uh, excellently said. I love the the point about the disjointedness and that that sort of unmentioned trauma that that sort of seethes under the surface of every scene. I think that's exactly right. Uh, what about you, David? What what opening thoughts do you have for us? Well, yeah, there's, um, to me, it, it felt like there's kind of almost like a musical component. And I think the commentary track by Richard Pena sort of, um, reiterates that, but it was kind of a thought that I had of just watching the pace of all these different scenes. I mean, there's, there's situations that are kind of slow and languid and a bit meandering and, and static, and you're just kind of watching them. And then all of a sudden these, these jolts of energy and, and kind of these, these bursts of action, certainly the stock market scenes stand out as, you know, frenetic human activity yeah, but but even you know uh, Monica Vitti's dance and the the little social thing that she does with her two female friends uh, and other moments where the pace really accelerates and then it slows down again. There's almost like this compositional symphonic type of thing that's going on. You know, you've got your you know fast sections and your slow sections, and that's kind of the you know kind of the emotional journey that that we're going on here as we're kind of watching these different characters all sort of struggling to connect they, you know and uh the other thing i think was just kind of this this sense of um erotic attraction uh that's kind of infused with this ambivalence of like 
do I really want to commit and go there and and follow this impulse? Um, it, this is a film about people who feel strong emotions and strong attractions, but then there's also something kind of holding them back, and that's especially true of Vittoria. She's, um, you know, again, we've, we've commented on the beauty of Monica Vitti in, in all three of our conversations here, and, and she's as gorgeous as ever, and and certainly the, the kind of woman who gets the attention of, of uh, handsome uh, young men, and uh, she, she kind of has this way of making herself appear <laughs> approachable and vulnerable and yet uh right when they get in the clinch you know she's pulling away she's looking off to the side she kind of puts up the stop sign and i don't think this is in a way that you would say she's come some kind of a tease maybe the men themselves might get frustrated and think of that but i think there's just a genuine ambivalence on her end of of what is she really looking for um and and you know what does she want from life and i, I feel like that's kind of the the larger question that Antonioni is is presenting to viewers as well uh we have these you know material assets we have freedom and opportunity but what are we doing with it and and uh you know there is kind of an unsettledness especially in the lack of resolution not only at the famous conclusion of the film but really throughout so many scenes there's there's not a an obvious extract this message from this moment here uh, he's he's just tossing up questions and and you know that alienation that that ill at ease uh sensation is, is definitely being conveyed through the different interactions and landing in the laps and consciousness of viewers who you know many of whom i think relate in various ways to these situations um so yeah, it's it's a challenging film, but one that is, you know, in my mind, very rewarding and and always a pleasure to revisit. Beautifully said. Yeah, to pick up on just one of the great observations that you made there between Vittoria and Piero, I, I think they share a similar sense of um you didn't say apathy. Ambivalence, yeah. Ambivalence, that's right. Yeah. But it's both. Mm-hmm. It's both. They're both ambivalent and apathetic, and I think she's maybe just slightly more self-aware than he is. So it's not that, like you said, she's not being a tease. I think he's sort of unable to, I think, tell the difference between being ambivalent and being actually like invested in the next stage of his life. I think he's, he's such an impulsive player mm-hmm. where she actually has the ability to step back from their interaction and see it for what it is. Arik, give us some impressions. <laughs> well, uh, it'll be really interesting to, for me to see what I think of the rest of Antonioni's career after this, given what Scott said, because I did not like this movie uh, very much at all. And it, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm trading places with Scott from, from last time. Um, although I guess, I guess you expected to come into it that, uh, intense Scott, but it ended up not because you watched it again. But so maybe I just need to watch it many, many more times, but I, it just did not really connect with me on, on any real level at, at all. Um, I didn't even, I was so uninterested in the narrative by the time we got near the end that I had to watch the ending more than once to try to figure out what was even happening. Like what, what were the signs that I was even like you so beautifully said in your uh, opening monologue, Jordan, that, you know, that, that to you, it it seemed like they were play acting their own relationship and that that was kind of leading to the understanding that they were going to have this dissolution. And I didn't even catch that watching it. I was just like, oh, what the heck is going on? They seem 
still pretty happy. I mean, we jump, you know, the narrative jumps so dramatically. So it goes from them finally being a couple to them kind of, I mean, I think maybe we see their entire relationship in like about 10 minutes because the first hour and a half of a two hour movie, they are not together. And it just takes so long for that, that to become a thing that by the time they did, I didn't even really care very much. And they, it didn't help the, the, Kenyan scene definitely did not help with that, but no. the, the I really that is ooh, you were not wrong last time when you uh, <laughs> suggested we would have some things to talk about. But you know, for me, this movie just took a little bit like uh, almost, funnily enough, kind of similar to what Scott said last time. It just took so long for anything to come together for me that I didn't care anymore, and I, it was never clear to me what their deal was with the two of them in on any level. Like, so I didn't really even understand like. When they first started getting together, what her vibe was about, because she seemed to... They were really relying on Monica Vitti to do a lot of like heavy looks to convey a lot, and it didn't convey much to me So in this one, so you know, yeah. as amazing as she usually is. So I just was like, why are they getting together? Why does she not want to get together? Why are they now arguing with... You know, I guess the one thing that made sense to me was that they had a similar argument to the ones that she would have with her ex-fiance, so clearly, you know, she moved on to a new relationship, but whatever issues she had didn't change. But, you know, the, 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 the progression of their relationship is so quick and so cut up that when nobody showed up at the corner, I didn't even figure out that that was what had happened, right? Like, I was like, I was like looking online and people were like, oh, and then they don't show up at the corner. And I was like, oh, I guess that was the place where they always met and they didn't show up. Let me go back and rewatch this and see what they were looking like as they were leaving the building. Because as she was leaving the building, I was like, what are you so upset about? You were just good. And what is this alarm? And what does it mean that he just put the last phone down after all the other phones? And like, I, I just didn't, it didn't, it didn't land with me at all, unfortunately, but I'm very excited to hopefully by the end of this podcast, I will have a much better understanding of what was, what I was missing. And I, I honestly, I think that the issue was just probably watching it a little too tired and it taking a lot too long for anything to come together, but we'll see. I didn't like it. Also watching this after Lenote, where Lenote is so interested, despite all of its, you know, existential concerns, it's interested in these people and their emotions. Yeah. As chilly as those people can be, it does care about them and what they're feeling. I feel like this is an interesting departure from the other two films in the trilogy and that like these characters, Vittoria and uh, Piero, probably all the characters in this film, but centrally those two people kind of already belong to the void if you know what i mean like mm. the characters in la ventura and la note they face the void but vittorio and piero are they already belong to it you know for the void to truly embody like a, a frightening future it, you, like where all of your content all of your concerns all of your affairs are absorbed into this meaningless vacuum uh, you have to have something to lose you have to have content and these people are kind of bereft of content they have concerns but they're superficial so them realizing like, the, the void is out there and I have to confront it, it means a lot less than someone who has like material substance to begin with. Like the mm. tragedy of these characters is that they lack material substance from the beginning. Like they are not even yearning to be authentic in in my view. Um, and I think that's jolting the on, on the first watch. There's something, you know, Antonio is always described as a, a cerebral, chilly filmmaker. I don't always find that to be true. I think it's true here. I think the exercise here is abstraction, even with his characterizations. Um, but it's fascinating. Like once, at least for me, my journey with the film is once I let go of wanting to care about these people and wanting to care about what they wanted, it's fascinating to have two characters who, who have nothing to lose and who the world does not miss. Like 
I'm not position. sure. Yeah. I'm not sure if the, that that beautiful, like that breathtaking ending montage, is necessarily about the place where they don't meet up. It more feels to me like the film just drops them completely and just shows us the world that that exists without them, exists without their superficial concerns, and prevents the superficial concerns of other people. You know, their lives are so vague that therefore mm. so interchangeable that just to see like a portrait of the city existing in their absence uh is is what i took away from that uh at least on a cerebral level on an aesthetic level and i think we should get into that you know in a little while uh this film also has some very interesting things to do it's beautiful for yeah. sure and i don't yeah. want to yeah it's it, antonioni man that man knew how to make a beautiful movie so uh does, does anyone else want to touch on anything that that arc just raised yeah, I guess maybe going back to my analogy of this as a as a symphony, or or you might even think of it as maybe a, a visual poetry of sorts. It, it is kind of like an epic work where you know you could read through it the first time and sort of get what's going on, uh, but then it's not until maybe a sort of a reexamination where you start seeing how different pieces fit together or ideas you know and, and i'm certainly not trying to say well Eric, after you watch it two or three times it'll it'll all click and make sense <laughs> it, I, that, might. It, that sounds, it well it sounds a bit condescending and it's 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 often a, a way of you know kind of um fluffing up a, a a film that maybe isn't as successful as it as it ought to be by saying well mm. you just have to watch it two or three more times and then, <laughs> then you'll get it i mean it, it shouldn't necessarily require that kind of homework to mm-hmm. to get it but you know at the same time if if uh if you're maybe not in the ideal state of receptivity or if it's just not a film that's kind of on your wavelength at that time um, yeah. it's neither your film or the films or your fault it's just you know give it another shot and see how things come together but I, I i do feel like yeah that that abstraction that coldness that starkness uh definitely escalates here whereas i think even even though you know many might feel love and tour and la note are are chilly and abstract as well there there's a, a more of a warmth and a humanity to those those films once you acclimate to antonioni's style this here is a lot of surface and and one of the other i guess one of my other thoughts too is is the um, kind of the the infusion of death um, even though it's not a, a main central focus we do have uh that moment of silence at the stock exchange mm-hmm. where uh you know the the frenzy dies down for a moment because one of the you know, one of the brokers, one of the prominent traders had died that day. So they kind of go through this ritual exercise of a, mo- a minute silence. And then it's right back to the madness. Like everything just kind of picks right up again. And then you have the stolen car and, and the drunk who uh, drives himself into the river, picking out the driver's side there. And there's Piero wondering about, you know, the damage to his vehicle and if it's going to be, you know, easy to fix or not, you know? So, so again, it's, the, it's that coldness about, you know, the, the death of, people um you know and and the fact that the world just kind of continues to carry on even though you know lives have just uh, you know come to their end uh, e- even the balloon shooting scene you know this this colonial woman who's you know definitely espousing racist attitudes towards the you know the, the native inhabitants of kenya and her concern about you know pro- perhaps losing their property or or uh, you know the the you know 
the 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 rise and sense that the natives should have some kind of rights in the country that they live in uh these are troublesome concerns and yet there she is pretty good with a rifle just in case you know so there's definitely those kind of undercurrents of, of death and violence and and apathy in the face of all of that uh the, the brutality of the market, you know, the fact that, you know, fortunes are gained and then instantly lost and people just sort of have to suck it up and move on. I, I think Antonioni is looking at, at the coldness and indifference of society and perhaps the coldness and indifference that that breeds in the hearts of, of young people who, you know, should be, you know, perhaps coming together and, and establishing warm and human relationships and yet are just having a hard time doing so in this kind of uh, economically driven context. Well, it's sort of echoed in the part where Monica Vitti is like, well, where do all those billions lost go? Uh, and yes. <laughs> Alain Delon yeah. just kind of shrugs and it's like, it's kind of the same with people, you know, even uh, Monica Vitti's father, who they talk about briefly, um, she says, you know, her mother doesn't really think of him that often, maybe wonders if he died painfully kind of thing. Um, but there's a sense that once you've passed, then it stops mattering. It's the same with the billions, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, it's someone else's to lose, but no one's really to gain. And I, I guess we're going to keep coming back to the ending because it's such a striking and emblematic uh, feature of the film, but it's the same thing there. I, I think the often used summary that it's just about them not showing up is kind of reductive. And I think a lot of what Jordan expressed about is right on and gets at kind of the larger mystery of that sequence in the film in general, that people can just disappear and do just disappear and the world moves on. And there are other people with new concerns and new ideas and who may not know that people existed. And if they did know they existed may not remember them or may not think about them. And that's, uh, that's a, a stark thing to come into contact with, I guess. So, um, the way that I looked at La Ventura and La Note was that La Ventura was sort of about the uh, alienation existing in the lack of meaningful connections made between people. So everyone in that movie has very shallow relationships with everyone else, and they are therefore alienated from everyone else. And La Ventura was sort of like the response to that to me, or sorry, La Note was sort of the response to that to me of like, yeah, even if you have a relationship that's intended to be meaningful, you've been married for a long time, you have a real connection, you can still be alienated from each other and you can still, th those connections can still fall, fall apart and fail. It, would it be then fair to say that this movie is sort of saying that, that, that people are alienated from the world and each other and everything and none of it matters and everything is sort of just disconnected and nothing's has a, a even a pretense of a deep emotional connection that everything's sort of fleeting on, on economics, people, environment, the world, the ev everything. I would even say alienated from themselves. You know, they don't seem to know what they want or what their inner desires are or that they could even have inner desires in a lot of ways, uh, especially as they start to form a romantic couple. Monica Vitti and Alain Delon just sort of exist as pantomimes. They go through the motions of what they think a person should do in any given moment without knowing if that's what they should do. That's interesting because she does. I mean, certainly you know, he's probably less obvious about that only because he just seems like the guy from wall street, the movie wall street, you know, just, he just seems like that sharp young stockbroker guy who doesn't really have any particular inner existence. And she, on the other hand, sort of gives the impression of depth, but then her answer to every single question is, I don't know. So, yeah. And not, not in an interesting way. Not like, I don't know. Cause I'm not saying I, no. I believe that she doesn't know. Yeah. She just has no, 
agency or no sense of her own agency or no no real like sense of herself in any way yeah that's really yeah and i think even the stock market thing of like being that sharp cool guy with the cool car and who knows all the moves on the floor like that kind of gives him a form to fit into um if you lack a form it's kind of an easy thing to slide into because he can be successful at it uh he's obviously got the looks um going for him so he can easily slide into a persona that exists yeah, I guess I didn't care as much about the fact that he was empty because those <laughs> the stereotype I have of those people is that they're empty. So sure, of it was course. just like he's he's an archetype. Now that may not have been as true in sixty two, although it certainly seems like it. Well, I was thinking that exact thought that this is kind of a new sort of character type. I mean, there's certainly been shallow, you know, hustlers and, and mm. you know, um kind of flashy guys throughout cinema, but there's something kind of new and different and maybe the <laughs> the fact that we're in many ways surrounded by those guys or we're very used to that <laughs> yeah, that archetype being played out especially in the kind of post reagan america uh the, the you know the financial sector is full of Ellen Delons, but this is kind of Antonioni recognizing this is a new kind of young man that's coming up in Italian society and and by extension throughout the uh, you know hyper commercialized uh west in general i just want to highlight that observation you had scott that he was slipping into a role and that was one of the ways that he was sort of dealing with his lack of identity i mean putting my own words but i think that that idea is fantastic and absolutely right in, in the way that in the previous films the characters are grappling with this anxiety this uncertainty about one's value one's relevance one's place in the world and in terms of what antononi has described as his approach to you know, investigating the sickness of the soul. It's like stages of a disease, right? So in La Ventura and La Note, like they're struggling with the disease. Here, the disease has won, right? So the, they're no longer feeling anxiety about their place in the world. There's just sort of this vague sense in which they need to fill the vacuum with something. And so, yeah, you slip into a role. You 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 fulfill all of the stereotypes. The fact that he's sort of like bereft of artistic ambition, I think is another important part of, of Piero because there is, um, there's a connection I think that you can make easily between Sandro in La Ventura and Giovanni in La Note. Maybe we're meeting them at different times in their lives, but the path is sort of similar. Like Sandro is a guy who has betrayed his artistic ambitions for financial success Giovanni has achieved artistic success, <laughs> but he's about to, right? So he's achieved artistic success, but he's still sort of sick in the soul. Somehow he's still sort of listless and empty, even though he's a successful artist. So now he has the temptation to do about the same. Piero has no, as far as we can tell, any artistic ambition whatsoever. So, so he has no artistic claim to life. Even though he's been exposed to the arts, I mean, when he goes to his parents' apartment, there's all kinds of interesting yeah. you know, right. paintings. So, so he's he's a guy who's maybe almost like post-cultural. You know, he's like yeah, mm. he, he understands art. There's maybe there's a market value there. Maybe there's a certain prestige to having a painting up on the wall, uh, but it's not really anything he attaches to in a in a meaningful engagement with with the arts. It's it's all about the money and it's about the looks and the car and and right. the various women that he can score with. Because modernism doesn't care about art, right? It, it cares about productivity in a, in a very sincere way, and he's been claimed by it. You know, 
when Giovanni refers to writing as this act of like painstakingly putting together one word to another, he the, the key phrase I think there when he talks about that, and again this is this is going back to Lenote, he says it cannot be mechanized. Well, all of Piero's actions are mechanized. Like everything he does is mechanized and formulaic. So it's it's a strange departure. Um and in some ways I think it is what Arik said, like this is the point where everything does kind of become meaningless. Like the the meaninglessness of the stock market is mirrored in the meaninglessness of the of the romantic entanglements, you know, mm. where does the money go? Is almost the same question as, well, where does the love go? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Piero's art is dipping in on other people's conversations and then hustling to the pit <laughs> <laughs> to, to make his move before somebody else beats him to the punch. Right. Performance. art. You so, say. so why do you think that? So, okay. So given everything you've said, and I, I, it's very helpful and makes a lot of sense to me. And I do think that the sort of, ideas in this movie are are as interesting as in the previous two and certainly the style is as beautiful and i i'm absolutely i love the antonioni style but what about the how long it takes for any of this to develop in this movie like do we really need a 20 minute scene of the stock market like is that really necessary i will say that um on repeat viewings i tend to tune out kind of during the stock market scenes. Um, I think I I found them really captivating the first couple of times I watched the movie just because it's such a flurry of movement. Um, Mm. I loved, I think they referenced this description in one of the essays in the booklet, but like all the motions these men are making as though they're trying to like fling their hands away from their body even. Yeah. Um, And obviously it's just like, that's like the most happening in film. Um, But on repeat viewings, it is like, it does tend to be almost almost too plotty for what the movie's up to. It's almost too much activity uh, in contrast, and it's an interesting contrast, but it's not one that tends to captivate me on repeat viewings. It is remarkable to think that there's actually business being done with all of that, that shouting and screaming. Like, yeah, how do you sure. know like, when somebody's taken your order, and 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 when when do you know that you've you've made the purchase or not? And it's a couple old men scribbling notes on a ledger there. So it is, yeah, it, it's kind of a kind of a spectacle. But you're right; it doesn't really engage in the same way once you get you know in touch with the leads. So. Yeah. Uh, is this just a situation where Antonioni liked what he had and didn't want to edit it? Maybe he even felt a, a need to have a film of a certain length and substance just to kind of, you know, uh, make the statement. Because I think he was at a point where he was being cer- certainly looked at as the new Antonioni. Let's go check it out and see what he has to say this time. And so you almost there's a, a pressure to deliver uh, you know, something mm-hmm. of, of profound magnitude. I mean, he was very much a celebrity filmmaker at this point and would continue to be throughout the rest of the decade. Um, I, I think he delivers here, but I, I would agree that I think I, I enjoy from a purely, uh, you know, just kind of a spectator's level. I, I enjoyed the first two films a little bit more than this one. So. Mm, okay. That makes, that's, that's helpful. I did also like, uh, Jonathan Rosenbaum in his essay likens the stock market sequences to Antonio's history as a, a documentary filmmaker. And yeah, I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, for sure. And the fact that he used like actual stockbrokers in the scene, there's a real yeah. authenticity to their kind of gestures and way of moving throughout the room and comfort in that space and kind of the way they speak about their work. And I also, I do like the contrast between the work that they're doing and then kind of these small investors like, uh, Monica Vitti's mother, 
who still have these like old superstitions about like throwing salt on the floor and stuff. (laughs) Um, It's such an interesting contrast to show where Rome was at. And obviously uh, it was seen in these films and in kind of what Fellini was doing and some other Italian filmmakers at the time, there was obviously a great interest in that contrast between kind of old Italy and new Italy that I think becomes more and more kind of, I don't know, I guess ethnographic as time goes on, it becomes more and more kind of an object of study than like a a real thing we can attach emotionally to. Um, But you can kind of see through that context why Antonioni thought it was so important. So do you think her her mother is there because of that moment where she tries to have a meaningful conversation with someone and fails? Like, is that primarily the purpose of her mother? Like to show that she still has, at that moment in the film, she seems to still at least a little bit have some life in her and then it just she very quickly gives up but she tries yeah possibly that's a good observation let's talk about alendolon because i feel like he is the lightning rod that if i can mix metaphors here uh keeps those i think you're just looking out your window stock market i am uh (laughs) he keeps those stock market sequences afloat uh because he is such a radiant presence in this film despite what we've observed about the character he's portraying like the combination of piero's lightweightness and temerity combined with delon's charm just make for a a rather outstanding combination and i i hinted last episode that monica vitti doesn't always deliver for me i i like what she's doing here and and in some ways she's perfect for this role because she is so good at expressing surface level emotion and that is what's needed here. But I, I kind of feel like she's a little outclassed by, by Delon's performance. You know, he, he managed to express superficiality in a, in, in, a, in a really vibrant way. Like, he's indistinct, he's insub- insubstantial, but he embodies, like, the shape of all of those things. Just it, the contours of, you know, exertion and desire and consequence but without content like it's it's really remarkable and i feel like he's the mvp like on an acting level of of this whole enterprise i was just captivated by him do you guys uh, agree that he's really something in this film i definitely think (laughs) but go ahead (laughs) um well i definitely think he's a step up from sandro in la ventura yes in just kind of being on the same wavelength that antonioni is um delon was a very new actor at the time both literally in that he had just kind of burst on the scene a couple years earlier and figuratively in that he was fitting in to the more modern cinematic style of just observing people and he has such a natural way of carrying himself in films that i mean this is why he was so perfect for melville is that melville could have him do almost nothing and he would still be interesting um here he has quite a bit more to do and carries it both in the more dynamic scenes which kind of reflect what he was doing for uh, visconti at the time and in the quieter scenes which kind of speaks to the melville quality i was mentioning He's just such an inherently interesting person to watch, and I think he fits very well with Monica Vitti in that regard. They form an ideal couple of people who can perform these surface uh, gestures while still hinting at kind of the semblance of a soul underneath that will never fully get explored, but which is still kind of there lurking in the stray moments behind their eyes. Antonio referred to as these kind of traces of feeling that kind of motivate so much of this film. What about you, David? What's your take on DeLon's performance here? 
Uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, he's he's you know always charismatic. I think here, you know, he he is he's establishing you know sort of yet another mode of versatility here, uh, as we see, especially later in his career, he could play characters of of great depth and gravity. Uh, here, you know, he does what is expected of him in this role. I have a hard time saying that he was, you know, better than Monica Vitti. I think they both, you know, really embodied uh, what Antonioni had in mind for those characters. And, and you know, incredibly gorgeous, photogenic young couple, uh, kind of each epitomizing sort of that sort of uh, style of, of being a young person in, in, again, in this, in this context and, you know, you know, prospering middle-class Italy uh, with, with all the, with all the charms, with all the, the talents and abilities and uh, not perhaps given the uh, support or even the opportunity to really, you know, do that interior work to say, you know, what am I all about as a person? But again, that, that, you know, that's, that's a a degree of maturity and uh, personhood that, uh, you know, every, every culture, every generation has to grow into. Uh, I think these are characters that you would think of as in their, you know, mid to late twenties. And they're still coming into their own. I mean, I think there, there may be a point if you want to speculate, you know, over the next several years where, you know, some of the um, free and easy and, and hectic pace of of young single life, you know, may may take them in some different directions. But this is where they're at right now. And I think Antonioni is looking at the, the young people, you know, people you know, a bit younger than he is himself as they're finding their way through society. So, yeah, I, I think Delone did a, a fantastic job. And it's it's I think is this the only time that uh, he and Antonioni work together? As far as I know, yeah, yeah. So it was. It's great to kind of get this pairing, or or really the the three of them, uh, VD and Delone together under Antonioni's uh, tutelage. There, I think it's a you know pretty wonderful confluence that that brought them into this film. Interesting point about Antonioni being older than the, both the cast and the characters uh, in, involved in this story. I hadn't considered that, and mm-hmm. it's and that- hard to. Go ahead. Well, well, that you know, and that that'll definitely play itself out over you know, blow up and uh, Zabriskie Point, where again he's yeah, and uh, that was part of his his uh, audience, you know, was the youth culture. In my uh, 2012 review of Leclisa, I, I talked about how Antonioni was mentioned in the song Manchester, England, uh, in the Hair soundtrack written in 1968. So he was you know championed by you know the the, the now generation of the late 1960s as as a guy who kind of got it and and kind of broke open some of the um the, the taboos yeah, certainly blow up and it's you know uh, brief but but important use of frontal nudity and all of that was was definitely a breakthrough and antonioni was kind of seen as a guy who was taking cinema into new frontiers and, and i think this this whole film is is kind of building that reputation and, and building upon the reputation he had already established as a filmmaker. I think he really was looking for new directions and, and new frontiers into, into how uh, the filmed image and kind of a deconstruction of, of narrative conventions could 
open up new possibilities, uh, both for creators like himself and for audiences to kind of get caught up in, in his style of filmmaking and other modernist styles of filmmaking. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, the, the era of last year at Marienbad and, and, you know, Godard was, was definitely picking up steam. So there's just so much you know, Bergman we've already referenced so, so much, you know, really creative exploration going on. And this is Antonioni, uh, Again, you know, pressing himself to think outside the box and to show something to audiences that they'd never quite seen before. Absolutely, and let's let's bridge from that and talk well, about. Do I don't get to talk about why I don't like him? Oh, Arik, <laughs> we don't want to hear your naysaying anymore. No, We've it's had not enough. It, I, I'm mostly teasing. No, I I, I, I actually think I, I love Alandolo. He's he's a great actor. He, I, I, you know, his Melville work is some 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 of those are some of my favorite films, and I think he does a great job in this film. I I was only pushing back on you because I think that his character is so. And again, maybe it's just because of my own feelings about sort of the archetype character, archetypal character he's portraying. But it's just he's so empty and lacking in any sort of depth or meaning that I don't, and I definitely don't get the kind of like um, secret glances hidden under the surface with him. I think he just does a really, really good job of being that guy. I think that guy is has no future hope. Whereas, I mean, again, maybe that's my own, uh, you know, um, biases coming into play, but. You know, Monica Vitti's character at least like seems like there's a substance there, even though ultimately I think there's not. And I think that's for me more interesting. And also probably because as one of the essays mentioned, she sort of is the gaze through which we're following Antonioni through the story in a sense. Like she's, it, it, she is the representation of him in some, in some way. And I think that that makes her infinitely more interesting than him to me in this film. And, uh, and so for me, the film is much more about her as much as it's about anyone, much more than it's about him, for instance. Although I know that, uh, Antonio's, Antonioni's original plan was to have two movies, one about, uh, Monica Vitti's character and one about, uh, Elan Delon's character. That would have been really interesting. And I'm really quite curious what a film about him would have even looked like. And how that might have changed my perception of him. But no, I definitely don't feel like he outclasses her in this movie. I, I think he does a, a great job doing what he's you know, supposed to be doing, as it were. I think all that's fair. I think from an acting standpoint, what excites me about Delon's work here is it's almost like filming a dog. Like a dog is always just a dog. It's totally 100% a dog. And so, so yeah, so he's, he's being asked to do something one note here. He Jordan Esso so, calls Alain Delon a dog. A dog. A very convincing <laughs> dog. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you were listening so deeply. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. well, as we're saying that, 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 as we're talking about Delon the dog on my little uh, phone here where I'm playing it back, that's when he does his little side, sideways peek down her blouse as they're walking oh, yeah. on the street. So, yeah, that's a very dog like move there. <laughs> That moment was so incongruous animal. with the rest of the film to me. It was so interesting. I was like, oh, whoa, okay. We're doing that. Okay. Not, that kind of leering has not been something that Antonioni so far has done a lot of, really. Even when you have VT in the previous movie, who's really supposed to be kind of, at one point, primarily an object of attraction. He doesn't kind of do that. It's, it's interesting. Anyway. But he's just so naturalistic, I guess, is my point. Like a dog or a horse yes. or a bird, whatever it is. Like, I just, I believe that character is existing in front of me yes. uh, in a way yes. that I, I don't buy Monica Vitti's performance in the same way. The artificiality that this film wants from her um, mm. somehow uh, does end up being not just artificial for the purposes of the filmmaking, but artificial in terms I can see a little bit of the, of the strengths with her. 
And with Delon, I don't see it at all. It's it's so it's fascinating to me as a performance. Can I can I just kind of follow up on that a little bit? I mean, are you thinking yeah. about artificiality the way that that uh, Victoria will go from giggling and smiling effervescence to all of a sudden this kind of blank, withdrawn? What am I doing here? Why are you touching me? I mean, she she makes some really abrupt transitions. She really does. Is is that the kind of artificiality that you've got in mind there? Because that's that's a lot for a person to go that up and that down so quickly, especially you know in the arms of a very attractive you know, potential lover there. Or do you have something else in mind there? I guess I'm kind of curious. I would say it's not limited to that, but it includes that. In okay. Just her performance in general, I find that technically it's very savvy, and it she can do all of those jumps in so sort of tone and expression you know she can go from like you said the, these moments of sort of like stillness and vacancy to to abrupt laughter and i think technically it's it's done very well but it's like a piece of music that's done very accurately but doesn't quite have depth to it and i think even if you're performing a character that isn't thinking a whole lot humanity is innately like a, a endless pool, right? It's, it's innately deep. And mm -hmm. I just, I don't, I find that the character surface, the direction probably was very much about keeping it surface. And Delon seems to satisfy all of those demands and yet still be a complete person, like a complete individual. I, as unlikable as he, as he might be, as sort of shallow as he might be, I see 100% a person. And I'm, I think I'm seeing more like 85% with, with Vidi. But that's just my take. But I think that's that's kind of what I was talking about earlier is kind of what – why I find – like that he is a, a complete person. He's a complete jackass who has no – you know, particularly redeeming – you know, he's not a bad guy. But like he's just he's, – he is exactly what it is. Whereas I see her as being more in conflict, having more internal – in some ways, even though ultimately I think it's exposed to be pretty, pretty meaningless as well. There's at least that 15% chance that she has depth to her. Whereas he 100% for sure doesn't. But I think we're talking about different things. Like you're talking about the characters. I'm talking no, about the performances. I'm reading into the acting and saying, you're saying you're getting 85% acting from her. And I'm saying, I think that's actually her character. Agree to disagree. That's fine. <laughs> totally fine. We all know oh, you're yeah, a Monica yeah. BT hater. We've known this for... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk about this visual filmmaking. Because this the the opticality of this film, right, is in line with what we've been seeing with La Ventura and La Note. He's working with the same cinematographer on this film as La Note, a guy named Gianni Di Venanzo. And that guy also shot Arik Fellini's Eight and a Half. Oh. He hasn't yet at this point, but he will after this film. Mm. Um, so it's, of course, the draftsmanship of the cinematography is beautiful. It's not only arresting, but there's this really, there's a sensitivity to the way vacancies are arranged within the compositions. Like there's the investigation of negative space, which is one thing, but vacancy is sort of like a different enterprise. Like the implications of vacancy, you know, have to do with, uh, with tonality and, and, and the, the emptiness of the characters. And then there's the aesthetics of negative space and both are sort of powerfully woven together and very experimentally, like we can talk about the opening shot, certainly the montage at the end. But where La Note, which is, I think, a more sumptuous looking film, because it takes place at night and there's all this, you know, stark chiaroscuro lighting, the sort of noir flavor to it. 
this is a little bit more relaxed and a little less expected in the inventiveness that it, that it approaches. But I think this is probably the most sophisticated like visual experience of the three. Whoever wants to jump in, the, talk about your impressions of just like the, the visual aesthetics of this film on its own, but also in contrast to the other two. Yeah, I mean, this kind of gets back to what I was saying at the opening, that the visual patterns of this film, well, patterns, I guess, is being generous, the way it continually discombobulates us and disassociates us from the environment. Uh, I mean, the opening shot's a perfect place to start where you see this, like, you don't even know why you're starting with a stack of books and a lamp, but then you kind of see this weird kind of white lump on top of it, and a pan only reveals that it's a man's elbow. It's all these things that are in a sense, very ordinary, but are rendered ex even extraordinary in uh, the way they're photographed. I always think about the way like the street lamps look like these kind of hovering UFOs in the night scenes. There's so many things that are perfectly ordinary, but which become these forces of abstract art. And uh, there's a sense in which Antonioni is talked about a lot as like kind of a uh, photographer who got into film you know he comes up with these great setups but i think a lot of these depend on motion too the way uh Adelante's car comes screaming out of the night towards him is a perfect example of that um but just also the way that people behave within their environments behave in which the, in these structures that antonio has set up uh kind of half as prisoners and half as a force within those uh photographs Mm. That's beautifully put. David? Yeah, just just the angles at which characters are shot, you know, I mean, there you know, he he could make this a much more conventionally narrative film, but but you're right, it's the positioning of characters within frames, things off-center, high angles, just you know, just all kinds of visually interesting aesthetic flourishes that are are not just indulgence. I they they, they create a sort of a, a distance and a just kind of a sense of, of peering in on these characters from from angles that we're, we're not used to seeing uh, if the story if it, if it's just about telling a story you know back at the beginning of the episode when you were asking uh, Arik to do a, a kind of a, an encapsulated summary I almost butted in there and said hey there, read the Wikipedia article it almost has <laughs> line for line every single thing that happens in the film except though it does not get into the, uh, the describing the scene by scene of the ending but it's just it's just the kind of this, this literal description of a Events, which it almost points out the the meaninglessness of the actual you know events that take place in terms of what kind of a plot they're driving here. Uh, just describing it, it's it's really how the characters interact in these different environments and how those environments are are visualized, um, uh, and and sometimes that includes the soundscape as well. You know the the building that's got kind of that fabric on the exterior. It just you you could you could show all of those elements from more conventional angles but as scott already had stated it's it's the compositions themselves the way the shadows fall that that really do create these you know beautiful abstract images that are often pretty enigmatic in themselves of what what's being expressed here or what's being photographed uh but this film is just loaded with those types of uh visual impressions and i think it is that experience again as scott said of just 
interacting with the film, the actual process of watching it and taking those images in and then, you know, even reflecting on how is this impacting my own sort of state of mind as, as I'm kind of watching this thing unfold. And that's, that's kind of where I get into the revisiting because some of these images, uh, will strike you as familiar, um, from having seen them before, but there's like new meanings, new implications, new kind of suggestions that come from encountering them at a different point in space and time. Yeah, the soundscape, like you said, is also definitely worth mentioning. I love the spare use of piano in that final sequence. But because of all the, the, the things that you pointed out, including like the division of the frame, watching this film on silent is also kind of an interesting experiment, which is what I'm doing while we're, while we're having this discussion. Mm-hmm. I have it on in the background here. And, you know, so it's sort of divorcing all the other questions you might have about experiencing this film and just see it as a visual experience. Arik, I wonder if you might have any thoughts about that, given that you don't feel like the film gave you enough traction in a number of ways. If you consider it just solely as a visual experience, what is your takeaway? Yeah, I think, well, so before I get to that, I, I did want to make one point related to what Scott said, which is I think, in fact, thinking about it, and I, I even realized this at the time, but just kind of slipped my mind, that the, the way that the, that the film starts sort of in medias res with the the situation in, the, in her fiancé's house, apartment, wherever the heck they are, it kind of actually threw me off from getting into kind of the mode to appreciate the film because uh, I was like, just like, what is going on? Like, why leave? Like, what is happening? Why is this taking so long? Why is he, what is, what is he, why is he sitting there? Like he just shot himself. Like what's going, what is happening here? And it didn't, it didn't work me into the film. I was sort of out initially. I was like, cause she kept saying she was going to leave and then she was leaving. And maybe because we, I mean, I guess you could say, Oh, well, we've all been in these kind of situations, but maybe because there was no, like David said, maybe I wasn't in the right mood or whatever, but you know, it just didn't, uh, I was just like, can we get to some explanation of what is happening here? Anyway. Um, but the thing that I noticed, so, so immediately I was kind of out on the narrative of the film, but the, as I think I've mentioned a few times during this discussion, the visuals of the film are absolutely every bit the Antonioni that I have come to to adore. And I think that even though, so I, it's interesting because I don't think that the visuals connected the plot for me in the way that I think that they're trying to. I don't think I picked up on sort of the the complex interrelationship between the those extraordinarily photographic and uh, organized scenes. I mean, he's just... What a, I mean, his frame is so developed and so intentional at all times. And I, I think that's absolutely incredible. And he's it, such a beautiful way to make movies. But I think it's it's usually, at least in the previous two films, and I think here it's trying to be as well, intended to be in the surface, service of whatever the, the story is trying to tell. And, and it, that it's trying to help you understand on some level other than, you know, um, being told it's supposed to make you feel the the what the movie's point is, and I think on this one it, it didn't accomplish that for me at least this time. But it still was. I mean, you know, like as has been pointed out, the cloth covered building, the the office building where uh, Alanda Lone's character works with, which has all these like almost like like uh, uh, I'm making hand motions that no one can see, but these like crosses, you know, X's with the with the wood as you go down, almost like a, a hunchback of Notre Dame bell tower or something like that. You know, there's so much visual interest across the film and even interesting choices like the way that uh, Alain Delon's parents house and she, Monica Vitti comments on this is so dark 
and everything is so heavy. And you know, the, the, the way that the, the, the car is filmed when the um, body is being dragged out of it, the way the hand is leaning over, it's so beautiful. And even, and we really do need to at least briefly talk about this before we finish this episode up, but the incredibly, incredibly inappropriate racist and horrific uh, black, it's not even black face. It's black entirety. That yeah, Monica full, Vitti, full minstrel. Yeah. Yeah. The full yeah. minstrel show that happens is beautifully filmed. <laughs> like It didn't it, even occur to me. You're probably right. It is a it is a beautiful horrific abomination, uh, you know. And so the 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 film is at all times is is just visually stunning. For me, like I said, it, there were and there are moments in every every Antonioni film I've seen so far. There are moments where I maybe not blow up, but maybe where I like literally gasp of like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe this is happening. This looks so awesome, and that was certainly the case here as well. It just didn't connect to the narrative for me. But uh, I I feel like I. I feel like I like this movie more after having talked to all of you than I actually did while watching it, which is sort of an interesting <laughs> experience. Podcasting always does that, doesn't mm. it? <laughs> well, I guess you're right. We were going to talk about it, and it's time. Uh, I thought it was important to talk about some of the virtues of this film before we got into <laughs> sure. the you know, racist element, because it isn't what the movie's about. And in fact, unlike the nightclub scene in La Note, you could take that entire thing out and the yeah. film would, you know, would be better for it. You know, yes. you don't have to have yes. it serves. I mean, accepting that part of the charm, and I think this movie does have charm, ex- accepting that part of the charm of the of Antonio's filmmaking here is that we do have narrative asides in, in multiple, like part of the beauty of it is that it takes the time to explore things that have nothing to do with where the plot is going next like scott talked about earlier on in the episode so but we have this episode and so uh i guess i'll just i'll set it up um i'm assuming anyone who's listening to this has has seen the film but uh she gets involved briefly and gets not not involved romantically but she goes and visits with a neighbor across the way who is from this colonial family in kenya she was born in kenya it's a white woman and her apartment is filled with all sorts of relics from you know her life in africa she's now she's now in italy and at first it just sort of seems like it's going to talk uh, or explore like curiosities like you know tusks and and pictures of of waterfalls and uh, and wildlife, and then we get f- out of nowhere. You know, some of the some of the edits in this film are abrupt, and suddenly we get Monica Vitti. Lord knows how suddenly she is not only dressed in costume, but yeah, in in, in full body blackface. I guess you think could describe about that it. a lot. Like that must have taken a long time to get ready for that. Yeah. And the whole time, everyone's like, "Yeah, we're, we're going to keep doing this." <laughs> yeah, and meanwhile, the the other lady's like, "We should stop doing this." It's like she tries to be the. I mean, and then what she says is even worse. But anyway, we'll right. Get there. We'll get there. Um, and then there's the music, the soundtrack, like the sound of, of drums and, and other sort of like cliched uh, native soundtrack, why she does this dance, this full impression. Not So it's not just the costume, it's not just the, the makeup, but it's also the dance, which um, the colonial woman, Marta, does express some impatience with. And at first you think, oh my God, she's going to be the voice of sanity here. Yeah. Like she says, stop playing at being Negroes. And you think, oh, thank goodness. Okay, they are going to be shamed out of this. And then unfortunately, that was apparently not what bothered her. Maybe she just didn't want to be, you know, not the center of attention or something. Because when it gets to the next bit where they're all lying together and drinking more and she's talking about the situation in Kenya where she says they're taking up arms again. And she describes how, you know, the... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
she says, six million monkeys, right? She describes the indigenous population of Kenya. Uh, they want to overthrow, of course, right, the oppressive colonial presence in their country. And um, she she says, you know, they want to get rid of us. Now, so it's the language. It's, it's also the fact the film doesn't shame Marta for having this point of view. The other characters don't really. There's a very gentle, very subtle sense in which maybe the other two women don't agree, right? Because when she says, you know, I'm going to read the quote here because it's um, it's worth seeing how, how gross it is, if I can find it quickly enough. Uh, okay, I'm not bringing it up. I'm going to approximate it. It's something like, uh, this is Marta speaking about the indigenous people of Kenya. They Luckily for us, they still live in trees and have barely lost their tails or they would have already uh, gotten rid of us. And the other friend... Anita, I think her name is, she says, well, about time. And that's when Monica Vitti's character, Vittoria, laughs. So again, very subtle rejection of the point of view of Marta. And the only other sense that we get that Vittoria has actually any opinion on this whatsoever is one scene later when mm-hmm. they're outside and she throws the monkey word back at her when, she, when, when Marta is discussing like, you know how she i think she says something like i miss i miss being around my people and victoria says you mean the monkeys um so so there's a slight barb barb to that it's it it can be read as a criticism but it's not it's not super clear well it could even be said that you know marta belongs with the monkeys i mean you could even make it even more racist in its intentions than perhaps it needs to be yes. interpreted right absolutely and so the vagueness of it becomes another one of the problems. But I would say, before I open it up for the three of you to, to add your comments, I'd say that the only thing that I could say about the way that this is handled is that it is in line with the style of character depiction in that many things that people do in this film aren't exactly to be celebrated. Um, the, the film doesn't take an opinion. The film takes a neutral stance on almost everything like you know the the womanizing of piero you know the thoughtlessness with which people approach their lives there seems to be in general a kind of critique which is why i was interested in when david brought up that antonioni was older like maybe it's not just a critique of modernism it's also a critique of like the people who are too young to remember a different kind of approach to society but that is all speculative the film doesn't take a stance and it is problematic um, and it does make it hard to be on the film's side after this scene. So, with that. Yeah, so this is the one thing I'll say about that. And I don't know the ex- like Antonio's feelings. There's, weirdly, as far as I can tell, a dearth of people asking him about this scene, even though you would think this would be a scene everyone would want to ask him about after a certain point, uh, culturally. Um, but I, I watch a, like, a lot of old movies, and I think a lot about the fact that there's so much unacknowledged racism in in people's lives uh if you go back far enough that was actively a part of society was actively discussed and people had conversations like the one we see in Lickless all the time in society and you never see that in movies and there's a sense in which kind of old movie glamour both uh causes us to deny the uglier aspects of society back then and which probably made people think better of themselves in the time in which they were watching it. And I don't know that this is the best way to handle that necessarily, but 
the fact that it throws, like I said, these conversations had to be happening in society, especially amongst the class that Antonio is depicting all the time. And to throw it back so bluntly in people's faces, um, as part of a general exercise in critiquing, uh, the society structure in general, I can't think that it's entirely accidental or entirely um, kind of unacknowledged on Antonio's part. I think there is kind of an implicit condemnation in there and an implicit acknowledgement of the ugliness that props up what seems on the surface to be such a glamorous society. Uh, maybe I'm being overly generous just because I love the film so much and because I love Antonioni so much, but it, it seems so pointed as part of a film that is in general so pointed. Well, let me just speak as a, as a child of the sixties, I was born in 1961 in the uh, kind of suburban America, USA. So I came of age at a time when openly racist uh, comments and conversation happened freely in my own upbringing and across society. I think we have to acknowledge that this was a time where the whole kind of post-colonial questions were definitely in vogue and there was a huge adjustment going on even in just in western consciousness about uh black governed societies in africa determining their own affairs and what's going to come of our european uh you know relatives uh, uh who've who've moved into those countries and what about them and their needs i i I, you know, I'm certainly not going down the road of defending this or, or even trying to uh, trivialize it. I think it's just it's it's in a reminder of just how unreconstructedly racist uh, Western societies were at, at so many levels. Uh, even the commentary track uh, kind of seems to show that this is Monica Vitti showing, you know, kind of demonstrating her skills as a comedian, as an entertainer, which was kind of what she did before she got into all this high art stuff with Antonioni. Um, and, and she seems to be having fun kind of, you know, wiggling her hips around and doing her native act thing. And I think even TV variety shows of this era would have had a lot of this type of stuff, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, Dean Martin, or, or Frank Sinatra or other you know, mainstream entertainers having uh, having their supporting choreographed dance crew, you know, acting out tribal types of moves and things like that. That was just kind of how entertainment functioned. Um, you know, we we think about Mickey Rooney and uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, you know, his Asian impersonations and all of that type of stuff. That stuff was done for comedy. That was was done for entertainment's sake. And I think Antonioni was probably, you know, evolved enough to understand that there's some serious issues and problems to be worked out uh, as the West settled into this kind of post-colonial. Uh, political mindset uh he's he's bringing some of that to the surface in this rather innocuous form of three gals kind of hanging out and and having a a little fun time and conversation about it uh but you're you're not going to get the full uh weight of of uh the atrocities and horrors that took place under colonialism in a film of this sort at this time, uh, unless the filmmaker is really out to explore that particular topic in depth. This is more of a glancing reference and, and it is sorrowful to have to acknowledge that that's kind of how, you know, cavalier people were about this topic. Uh, but to me, it's just a reflection of how deep the problem goes. Yeah. I think, you know, you hear a lot of, 
when this kind of stuff comes up in these films, you get a lot of different types of perspectives uh, from people in modern times. And mostly no one on this panel has suggested this, but you get the like, uh, that's all movies were like that back then. No one cared. People weren't so sensitive or whatever it is. And oh, none of no, you were no. saying that. Um, mm-hmm. Believe me, people cared. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. and it was offensive then and it's offensive now. Um, I think that the charitable reading for this scene, it's hard. Uh, you can try to pull it together and and there is some thread there, but it's it would need to be a lot more for me to feel comfortable or confident suggesting that the, that it was an intentional commentary uh, in any particular direction, except perhaps just, yeah, these are the type of things these people are, are doing. But I think the film still tries to play it for laughs, and I think the film still tries to play it for, for entertainment. And to me, that makes it complicit in what in the... Like, there's no, there's not enough... The film is not sort of condemning these people, and therefore I can't praise the film, if that makes sense. Um, I think that it, it, it... To Jordan's point earlier, you could literally take this entire sequence out of the film, and it would not alter the film in any material way except for the better. Um, you could have... And you could still even have that character from Kenya. You could still have that narrative. And, I, you know, I read some, one person saying that you know what we were supposed to see here was that in the in monica vitti's racist imaginings of a more simple world you know she was happier right her character and and sure okay cool but that's still using people as a for your own purposes and not engaging with them in any real particular way so i yeah i mean i i i hear what you're saying and, and I, like i said i don't think any of you are saying the the awful, like, we just all need to be okay with the fact that the world was incredibly racist and offensive as though, which also sort of implies that we should be okay with how racist and offensive it is now. And I don't think that anyone on this panel is suggesting that. Um, it really, for me, it, it made it in the same way with Breakfast at Tiffany's, you know, there is a level that that wasn't as true for La Note. Like the, the situation in La Note is uh, also not great, but does not for me and other people may have completely a different opinion and that's fine. Does not for me sort of ruin the film in, in, in a lot, in a large way, uh, in, in a way, probably because the gaze is so focused on these two people and what they're sort of taking in from this and the society as a whole, this one feels very different to me and really did make it very hard for me to continue to care at all about any of this. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's bad. It's really, really bad. And I just want, if anyone for whatever reason is still listening to this podcast, who's never seen this movie, just be aware that it's really bad. And what kills me is they did cut material from this film, like mm. from on the commentary track, the guy talks about how there was, uh, and I'm not super eager to see this sequence, but there was, I guess, Anita and Vittoria went to a museum and, and looked at, you know, ancient uh, artifacts. And I guess there was some maybe allusion to like, you know, history of, of, of lives. Like, I guess they've always been meaningless. So I'm not mm. super excited about that. That feels a little more on the nose, kind of like the broken clock and the abandoned child in La Note. <laughs> but I would prefer... I'm I'm eager to have that in the film instead of this sequence. Yeah. There's also in one of the supplements, wasn't there some kind of a 
a game where they uh, Vittorio and Piero met some guy. They were out on a drive, and he does some kind of a slapping type of game. Uh, I, I can't remember what they called it, but that's another sequence where, where it was it was preserved uh, as an outtake. But it's it, it, not an outtake in itself on the disc, but it's part of a program about about this film where they. Yeah, so they cut that out as well. That would have been preferable <laughs> to what we had to sit through. That's so dance. interesting, yeah. by the way, just uh, not related to the awfulness of this part, but that, that what Antonioni chose to cut from the film was more mm-hmm. of the relationship of the people that are theoretically yeah. the center of the story. <laughs> yeah, again, I mean, I, I, I wonder if Monica took some kind of pride of in, in that performance, you know, show, yeah. showing off a different side of herself. Again, this was mainstream entertainment. It's just a nasty thing that they have to acknowledge as, as yeah. how, that's how it was. Yeah. Now, I, I may be wrong or maybe misremembering or misidentifying what you're talking about, David, but is the hand slapping thing, are you talking about the sequence where there's a guy with, with shoes and he, and like they're supposed to slap yeah. him and he slaps? Yeah, the cobbler Wasn't game, the, I think is what it was called. Cobbler yeah. game. Yeah, I right. thought that was from La Ventura. Oh, was but it? Could, okay, it may, I could maybe be I'm wrong. mistaken. Okay, yeah, that could yeah. be. You're right, actually, now that you mention it. It could have been from La Ventura, so. Yeah. Now, okay. one thing that they didn't, I think, even film, but I would be kind of eager to see if, if they had documented it, was in this film, when his car is, is crashed into the river there, there was supposed to be a shot, apparently, of the headlights of the car still on, submerged under yeah. the water. Yeah, that was mentioned as well. That sounds kind of gripping. So, yeah. So I guess um, in summary, I think you know everyone's views on here about this sequence are are totally valid, and I agree in in large part with with everybody. I think David, you're right that this, um, in terms of an honest representation, that these conversations that take place in rooms do include problematic material and problematic observations and racist opinions that are ugly and that we're ashamed of. And then the question is. To what extent, considering that a movie like this becomes part of the cultural record, right, of Western civilization, to what extent do we want that a part of the record? Is it better to have an accurate representation of the some of the ugliness rather than have a whitewashing, right? Or, or is it worse? I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think Arik's point that ultimately – there are parts of this that even if even if you take the generous position that there's a critique going on here, and I'm not certain that there is, it is played for laughs. Right? That 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 dance, that minstrel dance, is played for laughs, and I think that's um, that's a pretty damning point. But let's um, let's move on to either talking about the uh, any additional thoughts on the ending sequence. Uh, it's getting time for us to start wrapping up the conversation. And I would like to not end on that part of our discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I have some other thoughts about that last sequence, but anyone jump and think, consider this like a, a final thoughts opportunity. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll go first. Cause I'll have the least to say, I, you know, as I didn't get it right. At least the, the initial time I watched it, I'm still not entirely sure whether I think that it is really just intended to be, you know, that they didn't show up, that they lied to each other, and then that their love was sort of destroyed as the barrel was emptied and then sort of pulling back into a day in the life of this neighborhood and showing that nothing mattered and these people. Or if I think that Antonioni just filmed a bunch of stuff that he liked, like he did in La, La Note and just wanted couldn't not use it, like with the tree with the ants. Like what does any of it mean and does it mean anything and, and all that? But it is certainly very pretty, and uh, I don't think that I quite feel as – uh, 
drawn to it or as enamored with it as some of the commentators on the film seem to be that this seems to be like, you know, really like they're the, you know, like catnip for them. But it was certainly uh, an interesting way to end a film. <laughs> At the very least, it's an unusual way to end a film. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is another, uh, actually kind of like the stock market sequence. This is a part of the film that every time I get to it, and I've seen this film many times, so I get to it pretty frequently, but every time I get to it, I'm like, oh, right. We all kind of know the deal with the sequence, but unlike the stock market sequence, every time I'm like, this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those things where I totally get if you're not on the film's wavelength, if it's not working for you, uh, this is going to be the most trying part of the film because it is so much like the id of the film expressed and it's something I can't even quite get at. But if that it isn't working for you, then certainly the sequence is not going to be a happy way to summarize, to sum up um, what you've already gone through two hours to get to, uh, <laughs> to spend another seven minutes with it. Um, but for me, it is so much uh, about what the film is doing in terms of the dissociation, in terms of uh, the way environments get imbued with a sense of the people who have been in them and the way those environments imbue the people in retrospect uh and the fact that we see all these kind of disassociated faces some of whom we've seen before some of whom seem brand new to us at least i don't recall seeing all these faces at other points in the film um but because they're interacting with this environment that we're kind of familiar with they kind of gain another kind of resonance and the fact that we're absent the people that we're supposed to care about but who we haven't really gotten a great reason to care about but who we still kind of associate with in some strange way if by no other virtue than the fact that we've just spent two hours with them um their absences the new presences the strange way that antonio keeps revisiting the same spaces that seem like new spaces in every shot uh but which carry the sort of inherent interest to them I, I don't know i know i'm rambling here but the film that the sequence never ceases to uh kind of inspire and invigorate me can i ask you a question yes so do you think that we're intended to see that man in the suit and the woman with the blonde hair as like is this gonna be them and then it's not them and then we see that yes. they're just random people definitely okay yeah, and I think and I think that's that's even a touch of playfulness on Antonioni's part. Yeah, I mean, he agreed. is he is showing some kind of you know um, heft and and gravitas as a artistic, poetic, aesthetic filmmaker, and in, in weaving these images and you know challenging the audiences. You know, what do you make of this this enigmatic sequence? But in the meantime, he's also you know having some fun with us. He's he's kind of you know teasing and playing along, and again a little bit like we talked about uh, you know, the Vittorio character. Is, is she teases? Is, is this kind of a come on and then a turning away at the last minute? Um, yeah, there is maybe a bit of flirtation. You could even maybe say there's a bit of self indulgence, but uh, I, I think Antonioni's earned the right to that. I've just you know, just because of the the power and the talent of how he's put this film together, it's like he's kind of wrapping it up on on his own terms again, without the conventional narrative payoff. You know, will Piero and Vittorio work it out? Uh, you know, we we saw the same type of thing with. Uh, 
with Giovanni and Lydia at the end of La Note. Well, there they are, you know, writhing around in the sand pit and then all freeze and looking at the landscape and, and looking at the sort of the bigger picture here. Uh, this, this film even expands upon that, you know, ending in that kind of, you know, bright, you know, fluorescent light there, uh, like uh, Scott said, a, a UFO hovering over over the face of the earth until the the final you know the fine comes out as the uh, the end and and uh, yeah it's it's definitely it's a head scratcher it's bravura though and I, I I agree I think that's just um, it is what it is you know um, you take it on its own terms uh, it's almost like a revolution nine like the Beatles do that on the White Album it's like Here's something you've never heard before. Check it out, <laughs> and you know, you might love it. You might think, "What a what a pile of garbage that is." What's the point? Um, but they're just going to make their statement, let it sit there, and uh, make it what you will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, it's uh, pretty close to Scott's. Uh, I think experience of it. I, I find it absolutely stunning. Um, but I'd like to take it back just a, a few beats and. I obviously talked about this in the introductory remarks, but I'd like to underline one more time how exciting it is that this film takes this relationship that, again, very slow burn up to it, doesn't place a lot of emphasis on the fact that Piero and Vittoria have gotten together, but there's a sort of number of sequences where there's flirtation matures, and then finally they are together, right? And then when they when they seem to dissolve into nothingness it's like they were never quite entangled right so this 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 idea that this relationship kind of barely existed in the first place i'd never seen that before i don't think i've seen it since done in quite this way you know all of the dramatic tension that most stories you know rely on is absent here it's just like the floor underneath them evaporates and they both kind of notice and it seems to kind of bother them but then it just then then even their reactions to it seem to also kind of like dissolve into into i wouldn't say emptiness but just you know get absorbed into the fabric of whatever else is going on and one of the things that's going on is this environment that in previous films Antonioni seems to have insisted was a kind of quiet antagonist. You know, when Lydia walks through the city, it feels like there's there's menace there, or at least a partner in anxiety and despair. And here the world is, I think, no less persistent and dominating. But now the, the neutrality that this film is so interested in seems to pervade. So we get this arrangement of shots of different things, sometimes close-ups, sometimes delivered abstractions of buildings and shapes, and sometimes small moments of people going through their, you know, quotidian routines of city life. Um, and there are those teases of like, could this be our characters? But I think that's, I think playfulness is the right word, David, but it's also just to also underline like the interchangeability of these people um, with everyone else in the city at this point. And the the final shot, this uh, this this UFO, this this close up on this street lamp. Um, if you'll allow me to uh, go one step further and say that, you know, since impermanence has has been such an important concern of the film, and the movie is called the Eclipse. Uh, this is the sun, right? To me, this is the sun. That it again. I know I'm taking this to a, a little further poetic extent, but if everything has been 
insisted upon as being fragile like the fragility of things is 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 something we revisit throughout the story we start with the fragility of this other relationship that we know nothing about and we end with the fragility of the new relationship there's some sense in which i see this as the fragility of the sun like all of the things that we count on as being absolutely invulnerable to our interaction with them everything from you know gravity to sunlight is ultimately going to reach its finale also. And I and I see that, I see some of that sort of suggested here in this close-up, which also maybe brings back a little bit of the, the haunting, dominating qualities of, of the environment. Oh, and one last thing um, that I, I'd like to throw in here. The kiss between the two characters that uh, happens with the glass between mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. I think is a, a, a gorgeous... Uh, idea and it's gorgeously executed yeah and and it's one of those things that's kind of on the nose like it's it's no one has to say well what does this mean and yet it's just so beautifully done and it reminds me specifically of if any of you are familiar with that the Rene Magritte paintings there are several of them called the lovers where the man and the woman have their heads covered in a shroud or pillowcase and in one version they're kissing in another version of the painting, and I think both of these are circa 1928, uh, their cheeks are sort of turned away from each other, very much like the the famous still from this scene, uh, from that scene that's often used to publicize the film, where Piero and Vittoria are embracing, quote unquote, and their faces are slightly turned away from each other. So look it up if you haven't seen it; it might be interesting. Um, so, listeners, one last note here about. The release of this episode. We are recording this on August 16th, but we're going to do a little bit of time travel here because my schedule was uh, busy next month. So we're recording this uh, very early. So I guess I'm going to use this to kind of pitch the Patreon for the Criterion cast because if you're a Patreon member, you're going to get this essentially right away. It'll be unedited, so it's going to have all of warts and and all of the uh, uh, you know lack of, of production value. But they'll probably get this in a few days. Whereas if you're listening to this episode on the feed, it's going to be uh, almost a month later. So we don't see money from that Patreon subscription, but you know Ryan Gallagher, the guy who founded Criterion Cast and organizes everything behind the scenes, you know, uses those funds to help, you know, pay for the website and the hosting and all that. So, so it's important and you get a little bit of something out of it. Do we want to have a bit of geeky fun and rank these films before we sign off? Is is anyone game for that? Sure. All right, Scott, go first. Uh, I'll probably have the controversial pick and say that Le Clis is my favorite, Love and Tour is second, and uh, La Note third, but we'll see how you guys shake out. I'll be. I'll go next because I'm the anti Scott. Uh, <laughs> La, La Note first, La Ventura second, La Clise third. Oh boy, it's hard for me. I'm probably gonna go just uh, one, two, three. La Ventura, La Note, La Clise in slightly declining order. But I, I really love all three of these films. But um, La Ventura, I think, is just one that enthralls me just because I think the the contrast of the island settings and and the uh and then the the city parts afterwards and uh, just just the boldness of it all but they're all three pretty fantastic films I, I love them all but i guess that's my ranking for now unless i'm confusing myself i think we all have different rankings so i would go lenote first and then laclise and then laventura we do we all have different rankings but you and i have the correct uh first <laughs> very good all right Arik, you tell us first where can people follow you online or see what you're up to 
Yeah, you can see where I'm up to at uh, cinemagadfly.com is where I write about all the films in the Criterion Collection and the Eclipse series, uh, speaking of eclipses, and uh, um, my podcast is called Fun Fact, funfact.fm. And Scott, what about you? Uh, on Twitter at Rail of Tomorrow, and uh, occasionally at Criterion Cast and Battleship Pretension. Awesome. David, do you have anything exciting coming up soon with any of your other podcasts? Sure. Well, depending on when you hear this, um, we just recorded an episode on Truffaut's Two English Girls, which turned out really well. Got a little bit of editing to do. That'll be out pretty soon. And then we're going to be doing A Touch of Zen this coming weekend, uh, which is another pretty impressive piece of work and another excellent cast lined up for that. Uh, Trevor assures me that he will be getting our uh, Satyajit Ray episode two of Inside the Box out there very soon. It's taken a little bit of a while to uh, edit all that, but you know it'll happen in good time. Come on, and, Trevor. Uh, yeah, and then he and I have a third episode that we're in the works for planning. So, yeah, wrapping up 1971 fairly soon. I've got Macbeth and Harold and Maud, and maybe another film or two that slips my mind at the moment. So we're getting close to the end of season three of Criterion Reflections, but Criterion Cast is where I publish all my stuff. Awesome. And listeners can follow me at Jordan Esso on Instagram. Next time on this show, we're going to be taking a sharp detour from covering Italian cinema, and we're going to be looking at The War Room, the 1993 documentary about Bill Clinton's primary campaign. Um, so that will be out right before the election. Gee, I wonder why we did it that way. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Uh, thank the three of you for joining me in this conversation today, which I really enjoyed. And hey, I want to say, Jordan, you're doing a great job as host of all of this. It's really fun to let you sit back and steer the ship. Um, but yeah, I just want to give you kudos for... Uh, you know, guiding us as the as the uh, kind of facilitator of these of these podcasts has really been great seeing you take that role on. So Agreed. Good, here, good here. On you. Oh, thanks, guys. I really appreciate that. Well, it's been a great time, and I do so appreciate the four of us doing this every month. And I think our group chemistry is is right on. So I appreciate that. Yeah, even when we disagree, <laughs> <laughs> especially when we disagree. <laughs> hey, at least me and Ark had the right first choice. <laughs> That's you right. Know. That's good to know. I'll disagree quite deeply with that. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just going to cut that out, I think. Probably. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks so much. We'll get you next time.